0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note, as I always uh, say before our podcasts, this podcast is for educational purposes only and it's not intended for your personal medical advice. Please, for that, check with your trusted healthcare professional and, and do your own homework too to get the best information. Today's topic is alternative cancer therapy. Is it credible or is it crazy? And you know, we know cancer, just saying that word out loud is frightening. As soon as someone hears that they have it or a family member has it or a friend, the first thoughts I think are, who do I go to for treatment? Which doctor do I go to? Which medical center is the best for the cancer that I have? And even with so many scientific breakthroughs, many patients are turning to some form of alternative medicine to help treat or prevent their cancer from returning. However, you know, it's interesting with all the gains in holistic medicine, and I see patients in my practice in New York all the time seeking out holistic functional medicine. Honestly, cancer therapy has been what I would call a danger zone, meaning a lot of doctors don't want to go there because unfortunately, sometimes their license could be in jeopardy. And I don't know if this has to do with the powerful pharmaceutical industry, the hospital industry, the medical societies, just to name a few. And I preface all of this because it really takes a very bold physician or a martyr, I don't know, either one or the other, to take on the alternative treatments for cancer. But my guest today, Dr. Linda Isaacs, is one of those really special doctors. For over two decades, maybe more, I wasn't really sure, she has treated cancer patients with alternative therapies. Dr. Isaacs, I know, was a partner with Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who some of you may have heard of, um, and their practice focused on treating cancer patients and specifically pancreatic cancer, which, as we know, is one of the deadliest uh, incurable cancers, unfortunately, still to this day. Unfortunately, Dr. Gonzalez passed away and Dr. Isaacs has now been continuing the work that she was doing in New York, uh, in Austin, Texas, the last few years. She is a medical doctor, MD. She's board certified in internal medicine with a special expertise in enzyme-based therapy, to help cancer, and other patients with chronic illnesses. So I'm really excited and pleased to welcome Dr. Linda Isaacs to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you today.
0: Okay. So, Dr. Isaacs, I usually like to start with background. Now, again, you are, like I am, conventionally trained internal medicine doctor, and I assume you didn't wake up one day and say, hmm, I'm gonna start curing cancer with holistic treatments. How did you get into or gravitate to what you do today?
1: Well, in some ways, I think, Perhaps the stepping stones for all of this were built when I was in medical school in the early days of the first couple of years of medical school, because- Mm -hmm. For one thing, I remember sitting in a lecture during my first year, and something was presented as a fact in biochemistry that I happened to know was a theory because I'd worked in a research lab that was working on that um, as an undergraduate. So it made me wonder how much of what I'm being taught is truly solid and how much of it is really theoretical. It it gave me perhaps a little more open-mindedness. Also, my mother had had a long interest in nutrition. um, So that, too, gave me some exposure to a different way of looking at things. But then when I was a third year medical student, I was assigned to an internal medicine team. And the intern on that team was Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez.
0: Oh, really? Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. And he was actually in the middle of his research project looking at the work of Dr. William Donald Kelly. Um, And Kelly was an orthodontist who had in desperation when he himself was diagnosed with cancer, put together a nutritional approach to deal with his own illness. And when that worked, he started having people come to him wanting help with their own cancer diagnosis. So he had wound up becoming an alternative cancer therapist instead of an orthodontist. And Nick was in the middle of investigating his... Right. Yeah, we we're going to get him. into that.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. You answered my uh, the, the follow-up question I was about to have. But the, the first one is, you know, just for our listeners to realize, that's extremely unusual, especially for a first-year medical student, to be questioning you know, the what you're being taught, right? Because, you know, again, we're all so eager, we get into medical school finally, and you know, to learn the holy grail of all the medicines and and you're soaking up so much information, whether it's anatomy, biochemistry, all of these things. I, you know, I never found myself ever too much questioning. It was just a, a matter more of digesting it all And hopefully, saying like, "How is this going to be practical? How am I going to use this later on?" Uh, I was going to ask you how you met Doctor Gonzalez, but you answered that question, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's pretty impressive too that even that he was an intern, right? I, you know that that you ended up, you know, um, sort of crossing paths, because even also during internship, you know, most uh, doctors at that point are just in survival mode (laughs) getting through the on-call and everything. But I I do know his story a little bit, and we're going to get into that a little bit for the listeners, because it is so unusual how he ended up, um, you know, I don't know if we call it shadowing or working with Dr. Kelly, who's got his own crazy story himself, which (laughs) is, but it's fascinating. So, okay, so that's that's how you sort of got into this thing. And then did you, after you finished uh, your residency, did you go to work with Dr. Gonzalez or what, what happened after that? Or did you go back to a more conventional practice?
1: Yeah, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, I myself developed a fatigue syndrome starting right. in medical school and my health kind of gradually went downhill. So by the end of my internship, I wasn't terribly functional. Um, And I took a few years out from my training, but I was helping Nick out administratively because that was Mm. the window in which he was setting up a practice in New York. I see. And then I went back and finished my residency and got my boards in internal medicine and all that. But then after that, I came back and started seeing patients myself. Working you, with Nick.
0: working with him, okay. So that mm-hmm. that puts that clarifies the picture. Very interesting. Maybe we're going to get into some of that too. All right, I want to ask you something, because I think this is really important to set the stage for again the listeners. Um, you know, a lot of them can accept the whole idea, which for many years our conventional colleagues didn't. You know, the, the basis of the gut, you know, the microbiome. I mean, these things weren't even known. 20 years ago where not much was known and you know, how it can relate to a lot of chronic diseases that we see today, but cancer is like a whole different animal. But I want to ask you this. It's interesting. I did do a podcast previously, uh, maybe two months ago with an author, Sam Apple, and he wrote a book. It was very interesting on, um, I'm blanking the name, but it was on Otto Warburg, you know, the Nazi doctor who, uh, pursued, know, the cause and a cure for cancer in Nazi Germany. And it was really unusual. The story was interesting because he was half Jewish and he was also gay. And those things alone would have sent him to a crematorium (laughs) in Germany. But because Hitler was so uh, petrified of cancer, he -hmm. actually let Warburg continue his institute and research. So that's what the fascinating part of the story was. But, you know, in talking to Apple, and and it's interesting in the book, you know, Warburg was very fixated on um, what he called respiration and metabolic theories of cancer, uh, and as you and I both know, also um, that sort of went by the wayside. The more and more the focus on cancer became on the immune system, and as we know today, most a lot of therapies. You know, you watch on television the advertisements, and and, and medical centers are all these checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapies, essentially. But I guess I want to ask you from, again, your work and with Dr. Gonzalez, do you feel that cancer is a metabolic disease or is it immunological disease? Is it a little bit of both? How do you, how do you look at it?
1: Well, I think a lot of different things go into um, the whole cancer question. Um, you know, the the work that I do is based on the use of pancreatic enzymes, and that is based on the concept that they can affect the behavior of cells that are developmentally fairly primitive. Um, the, mo- the main example of that being a particular tissue in the, the in the embryo. And so my belief is that that cancer uh, cancer is a condition where stem cells revert to a more primitive type and that those primitive types of cells, like if you think of the the early stage of the embryo, it's got to be able to function in a low oxygen environment um, because it hasn't attached yet to the the mother's body to be able to get, get oxygen from the blood flow of the mother. And so, I personally think that that whole idea that Warburg had really is more of a byproduct than a cause um, of cancer. Uh, but you know, different people can argue different things. I got into this not because of elaborate theories, but because of the the case reports that Nick was finding in Kelly's files. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's kept me going on this work.
0: Okay, we're going to get into that in a minute. You know, it's interesting. Um when I was doing my rotations my third year of medical school and I had some really good professors, I'll never forget, you know, there was one that was in the, my gynecology rotation of all things. And I'll never forget, you know, he, again, sometimes, you know, you just see a professor who you just know kind of is just great. And it was interesting when he was giving his lecture on things and about the placenta, whatever he goes, he goes, you understand the placenta, he goes, you will understand essentially the cause and whatever, eventually cures for cancer. And this was back, you know, in the 19, yeah, I graduated in 86 from medical school. So it was like 85. And I thought it was fascinating because he says, it's the only thing where you have a cell that's like programmed, you know, to a certain degree. And then, you know, at some point it stops, it doesn't invade anymore. And, you know, the, the whole thing of, you know, cell growth. And, you know, as we know, too, for so many years, you know, doctors, especially gynecologists, used to take the placenta and like toss it in the garbage, you know, <laughs> and now today people are like, hold on to it, freeze it, save it, you know, the cord, you know, all that stuff. They realize there's so much immunological stuff there that, you know, could be obviously life-saving. So, um, okay, let's talk about Dr. Kelly for a moment. I think it's really important. I'll set the stage a little bit for the listeners, because again, what really blew me away when I heard a little bit about Uh, Nick Gonzalez's work. And I actually, you may find this interesting too, also about over 20 some odd years ago, I went to one of the Gerson uh, seminars and when Charlotte Gerson came into New York, and she was very interesting, you know, the work that she was doing, but Mm -hmm. again, for our listeners, and I'll try to set the stage quickly because I really want to get into a lot of specifics. Uh, Dr. William Kelly was an orthodontist in the South um, who Apparently, and this is all I get this from, from Nick's lecture and his book, which I have here, one man alone. Um, it was hard, hard to find, but I got it. Um, that he was an orthodontist that developed what was believed to be uh, some type of abdominal cancer, possibly can- pancreatic cancer. And, you know, Dr. Kelly, I think he had some children and uh, he was married, but apparently I think when he found out he had cancer, his wife left him. I mean, this is, I remember when Nick was telling the story and he was left to have to raise his kids and his mother came to live with him. I mean, he was telling the whole elaborate story and they put him on this whole nutritional program, you know, and somehow he was a very bright guy. He started doing his own research and came up with this type of pancreatic enzyme. And, and again, uh, supposedly just by doing all of this, uh, cured his cancer. And now, again, back in those days, it should be known there was no biopsies done. Um, it was an earlier time; there wasn't CAT scans. You know, this, this is a different time in medicine. So, I guess some of that could be disputed. But what Dr. Kelly went on to do, I guess by word of mouth, start to treat people, you know, with different types of cancer who found him out. Um, and uh, so, as his reputation started to grow. I guess I assume Dr. Gonzalez. I th- oh, I think it was through a a, um, a writer friend or something told him that they should check out this Dr. Kelly, and he's like, "What?" You know, he goes, "Yeah." And again, Dr. Gonzalez said he goes, he sort of initially did it to kind of you know, you know, pull the rug out and sort of defraud, you know, make sure that, you know to find the the fraud in whatever uh, Kelly was doing. But you know, after a while being with Kelly, he became a believer. And I guess he saw the, you know, the uh, some of the the case reports, which you know, he guess you know, again in this book, one man alone, he documents some of these in- interesting, incredible case reports where people who should have been dead long ago were still alive following Kelly's protocol, and. Um, so, what I want to get into, you know, is is some of the specific things. Because also, when you first hear some of them, okay, enzyme therapy, which we'll get into, coffee enemas, which I know blows a lot of people away, enemas, coffee enema. I only drink coffee. So a lot of the lot of the supplements, and then I want to get into also the diets. But actually, before we jump into that, you uh, it's been mentioned in. Uh, the one man alone book, I think in in lectures and and you've talked about this. How do you review a patient if they God forbid somebody has pancreatic cancer and mm-hmm. the doctors saying, Okay, yeah, we have you could go into this clinical trial, you could do this, et cetera. You know, or they say, Okay, I've heard about Dr. Isaacs. I want to go see her. What do you do in the evaluation and Confirmation. You know I mean, again, you are a medical doctor with a license. What what's your approach to a patient that's turning to you, um, you know, for possibly you know tr- being treated?
1: Right. Okay. Well, um, one thing I want to mention: it's a common misconception that we mainly treat pancreatic cancer, but in fact, right. we have historically seen a lot of different types of cancer. Pancreatic cancer was the one that we chose for research projects because pancreatic cancer has a fairly uniform uh, natural history. In other Uh words, it it doesn't vary that much from one person to the next, whereas something like breast cancer or prostate cancer can be extremely aggressive or extremely slow. So it would make it uh, so that people could just argue that somehow we managed to only find the slow ones um, if we published anything. Uh so having said that, you know, if someone wanted to come and see me, the first thing that I ask them to do is send me written information about their situation. Um, because for one thing, I don't want to t- take on somebody if orthodox medicine has a potential cure for them.
0: Okay. So a, a,
1: very, a very common situation is, you know, women that understandably don't want to have surgery to remove a breast cancer or people that don't want to have surgery for colon cancer. But either of those situations potentially could be completely curative. And so I'm going to encourage them to go do that.
0: Do you have a cutoff? Let's just say to, um, just throwing a specific example, because you brought this up. So, I mean, obviously if someone has a large breast tumor, I don't know, like, you know, we're talking about five centimeters uh, versus somebody who has maybe was picked up on a mammogram one centimeter, will you differentiate, you know, and say to them, no, go conventional, or will you say, you know, again, if you want to, we can try this for six months, you know, your therapy to see if it uh, reverses or how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier about medical legal risk and quite frankly, setting aside the ethics of encouraging a patient to turn down a curative treatment to do something mm-hmm. that fundamentally is not proven. Okay. Um, there's also a, a pretty serious medical legal risk, and it's not really fair to the rest of my patients for me to take on a situation like that because but you won't do that. Okay. It, yeah. If it, if it turns into a case, it's a lot of sleepless nights. I get
0: it. No, I, I get it. And, um, you know, so I, I just was curious because, again, I'm, what I'm trying to differentiate is who do you take on? You know, obviously the patient has to be willing, but they have to be informed. And, and again, as what you're saying, which makes sense as a very responsible physician, you know, what are the alternatives to your treatment? You know, is there something better, safer? You know, well, I shouldn't say safer, but better, you know, or we have some more data. Okay um yeah
1: and and i guess another example there would be that you know there are some lymphomas for example mm -hmm. or testicular cancer where chemotherapy can be completely curative yeah and so you know i I really can't encourage somebody right i get it
0: yeah no that makes sense uh but no but when you're looking at patients too i mean you're looking at like obviously biopsy stage of disease um do you do hair analysis? I thought at one point you did do that or something. I can't remember when I spoke to Dr. Gonzalez years ago. Uh,
1: yeah, we have a we have a test that we use that's really kind of adjunctive to our clinical impressions. Mm-hmm. So, so it's 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 not a commonly accepted test, and it's not you know it's not something I really dwell on um, in terms of this kind of of uh, of setting. But it's something that we do use, but my clinical impression works just as well, actually. Yeah,
0: because I remember there was, again, there was a mutual patient we had many years ago who had breast cancer. And again, she was going for hair analysis. And I know sometimes it's hard to find good places, but apparently, you know, your practice had some really good way of doing it. So, okay. Um, All right, so maybe let's explain to the listeners what is the therapy? Let's go into about enzyme therapy, uh, if you can, the coffee enemas, you know, and as I said, the supplements that you recommend in the diet. I remember at a time, and I know, it's pretty rigorous, so unless that's changed, you know, there was just a lot of supplements. Uh, Kelly, as you know, too, recommended coffee enemas quite frequently. I don't know if you do as many a day as he recommended in his treatment. So um, take us through this a little bit.
1: Okay, well, there's several different components of the treatment as you've already mentioned. And one of them is nutritional supplementation. Uh, The bulk of the supplements for a cancer patient will be pancreatic enzymes. It's freeze dried pancreas actually, which is naturally rich in enzymes and then the precursors to those enzymes. And uh, the use of pancreatic enzymes or the theory behind it actually goes back 100 years to a researcher named Dr. John Beard. He was an embryologist by training, meaning that he studied the very early stages of life. And like your professor in medical school, he said um, that he felt like the key to cancer was in the behavior of the placenta, that connection between the mother and baby because the placenta or the early stage is actually called the trophoblast. Um, And those cells, their job is to invade the uterus and create a blood supply. Cancer also invades and creates a blood supply. And so Beard, just using a regular microscope, noticed that similarity and then said, okay, if we can figure out what makes the placenta mature, because at a certain point, the, the placenta stops invading, and right. it matures and then it neatly peels off at delivery and so if you can figure out what that signal is that makes its behavior change then maybe that's an answer for cancer and what he found looking at what was going on in the mother and the baby in, in a number of different species was that at the time the placenta changed its behavior the baby started making pancreatic enzymes now, at this time, people believe that all pancreatic enzymes did was digest food. Right. Pretty much. What that's all I learned here. in
0: medical school. That they never right. said anything else. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: and that's pretty much still what's said. I mean, I think people might say, oh, it probably affects the microbiome. But the concept that it does anything more than that is really quite new. Um, but here are the babies making pancreatic enzymes two months into a nine month gestation. So it's kind of surprising if you think about it. Nature's kind of conservative. When are the lungs ready to go? Last minute. Um, but here the baby's making enzymes way before food, food is going to be seen. Why? Well, if it if the if the the reason why is to control the behavior of the trophoblast, it makes all kinds of sense. Because right. if that trophoblast just kept going, it would kill the mother, kill the baby. No right. good for anybody. Right. So Beard came up with that theory and a number of practitioners over the following hundred years have tried to do something with that theory with, with rather mixed results, partly because in Beard's day, that enzymes were not of good quality. They right. didn't have refrigeration. So right. you know, the right. enzymes would auto digest and turn into enzyme soup. Yeah. effective um kelly claimed that it, the story i heard was that kelly started taking large amounts of enzymes because his digestion was terrible and then noticed that the tumor started to change character and mm. then
0: yeah all right so dr Isaac, can you explain again one more time just the uh that last part about so um about the i guess yeah the pancreatic enzymes start getting secreted but oh the, the um uh, that it was hard to, to get, you know, good quality pancreatic enzymes in Beard's day because of refrigeration. Um, right.
1: Yeah. Um, so Dr. Beard came up with his theories about pancreatic enzymes controlling cancer, but Beard himself was not a physician. So he had a hard time putting it into practice himself. Uh-huh. And so various practitioners tried and some succeeded, some failed and Beard said, well, the reason it doesn't always work is because you don't have good quality enzymes. And Beard was actually advocating going to a slaughterhouse, retrieving a pancreas and mincing it up. Not too many doctors really wanted to do that. They wanted to use the commercially available product that many times was junk. Uh, And so there was a lot of back and forth about whether or not it worked. and then interest in his work gradually trickled away. Did it um,
0: matter if it was injected or if it was taken orally? Because obviously Kelly took it orally. Did that, was it, I, I remember reading something, maybe even in your paper that you sent me, did it, was it an issue, you know, I mean, would it have been more effective if it was injected or not necessarily?
1: Well, um, supposedly the products that in Beard's era that were injected, um, he he felt it needed to be injected, but it was also supposedly extremely painful. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a practitioner in the fifties and sixties that was using an intravenous product, but then the FDA came along and said, you can't do that. So that's not an option. Um, Beard, I, I mean, I'm sorry, Kelly used oral enzymes, he swallowed them, and they seem to work. So, you know, the the conventional wisdom is that oral enzymes, if swallowed, are are destroyed. Um, But there's actually a study that would indicate that in dogs, raw pancreas gives a better enzyme supply to the intestinal tract when swallowed than the pharmaceutical stuff does. So the products that we use are actually freeze-dried pancreas, which is probably about the closest you're going to get to raw pancreas, short of eating raw pancreas. Is it
0: is it the pancreas from other animals? I mean, or
1: yeah, um, it's um the pancreas we use is primarily from from pigs.
0: Pig. Pigs, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what insulin came from and all that. Um, one other thing too, you mentioned in an article that you had sent me to was very interesting. And I, again, we're trying to explain this to the listeners, is what, what's called the you know the pro enzymes. You know they that was the issue too. Like you know we learn this in I guess whether it's physiology, you know that enzymes um, typically are secreted out of an organ. In, in like a pre-form so that they, they, you know, they're not, they don't get activated until they get to the place where they're supposed to work. And then, you know, whether it's the chemical environment or something else, uh, you know, um, you know, gets chopped off in the biochemistry and then it gets activated. So is, is that also again, something that you even use now, or like when you're saying you're using pancreatic enzymes, are you using like a pro enzyme form or is it the actual, you know, I don't know, pancreatic enzyme.
1: Yeah, the product that we use is literally freeze-dried pancreas. It's been Mm -hmm. activated slightly, but just to perhaps fill in for your listeners a little bit, the pancreatic enzymes um, that cleave, you know, the breakup proteins are stored in the pancreas in a precursor form, mm-hmm. sort of like a, I suppose, a bomb that needs to have the fuse lit. Exactly. Good, good analogy. Right. And the reason being that if those enzymes were active in the pancreas, they'd be munching up the pancreas. Right. Well. They'd auto
0: digest. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, um, so they're in the precursor form. And so the product that we use is freeze dried pancreas that Mm -hmm. most of the enzymes are actually in the precursor form Mm -hmm. now there are actually some researchers that are working on the use of pancreatic pro enzymes that would be the precursor form in cancer Uh, and they've been they've done some basic science studies in the 2000s you know in the last Mm -hmm. 10, 10 15 years uh, showing some some very interesting effects on cancer cells in cultures and in mouse models and that kind of thing, so it, it may turn out that the real active ingredient is not the enzymes that are activated, but the pro enzyme form. Not really sure, but mm-hmm. with the product that we're providing, ineffective supply in both.
0: Wait, so again, how are you getting your um, this freeze dried pancreas? Because it's not a not a pharmaceutical so you you get it through a uh, some kind of relationship you have with these slaughterhouses or something
1: well there's a freeze dryer in new zealand and they're the ones that have the relationship with the slaughterhouses so fortunately oh. i don't have to go do that um so, but, so your stuff is getting
0: shipped from new zealand
1: yeah the raw material oh, wow. like the the freeze dried and minced up um material mm-hmm. is shipped from new zealand and then encapsulated here
0: okay All right. Let's move on to another part of the therapy. We'll we'll circle around to a couple of things, the coffee enema. And I know, I remember the first time I was hearing about this at the Gerson therapy because they recommended coffee enemas for cancer patients. And then so it wasn't as mind blowing when I heard Dr. Gonzalez was doing coffee enemas, but I, um, you know, again, it sounds like crazy, but what was interesting and as you know very well, you know, enemas were actually and I think even coffee were in the Merck manual. And just for our listeners to know, cause you and I are dating ourselves now, when we were in medical school, the Merck manual was like literally our little Bible. You know, you could flip to a page and it gave you very concisely all the most important information. You know, now everybody goes to Google. <laughs> but before Google, there was the Merck manual for not only, you know, for medical students and, and doctors, but also for patients, you know, uh, an interested patient would get the Merck manual and it was very readable. So explain a little bit the, the thinking between why enemas are important component of this uh, treatment program.
1: Okay, well, first of all, um, neither Gerson nor Kelly invented coffee enemas. Right. Uh, I have, I've actually found re- references in the literature going back to the mid 1800s talking about coffee enemas. And they those references were describing it as if it was something everybody knew about. So I think the use goes back a couple of centuries. Actually. How
0: would they do it though? They didn't have like plastic tubing. How, did, how would, I guess you just.
1: Oh,
0: uh, well, I actually have
1: a, a thing um, that's too bad. It's on the other side
0: of the room here. Uh-huh. But
1: it is like a big metal syringe Ooh. with a metal thing at the end. And Ooh. it's quite scary looking, but wow. uh, but it's a medieval Enema, wow, I guess yeah equipment that somebody gave me. I don't know if it's truly medieval, but it's it's a good two or three hundred years old and it's wow. very, very looking. But yeah, they they they, they, got, did it done. It. Okay. they got it done. Okay. Okay. So uh, i I've, I've actually found references where one of the Mayo brothers who started the Mayo clinic was talking in a lecture to another group of physicians about how coffee enemas were essential in post-operative care. So they've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what they actually do, well, first of all, the most important thing is they make people feel better. Um, and my patients do not believe me when I tell them, but almost without exception, they feel remarkably better when they do the coffee enemas, and they love them. Um, you mentioned you—I think that, you mentioned
0: you even did them when you were sick in uh, in some kind of article. I think that you sent or an, or an, I forgot where I read it. Something you yeah. said it was helpful.
1: Oh yeah, I still do them and I still yeah. find them helpful. So, okay. you know, I don't it's not a, a critical necessity at this point, but I feel better when I do them. So yeah. you know why would I quit?
0: Okay. So um, what's yes? Yeah, so let's explain though, like the the thinking behind it, you know, like what what is it actually doing? I mean, because you're shooting up obviously a liquid, in this case <laughs> coffee, to the but to the lower rectum and intestine. It's not going through the rest of the intestine, right?
1: Yeah. What, Well, first of all, just in terms of of hard data, so to speak, um, there were some some investigators in Korea in 2014 who did a study where they looked at um, they were trying to demonstrate whether or not coffee enemas would stimulate bile flow. And what they did was look at patients that were going to get capsule endoscopy, you know, where they swallow a little capsule. Mm -hmm. And the trouble frequently with that procedure is that as the little capsule goes past the bile duct, the bile duct is stimulated and bile is released from the gallbladder and it obscures the view, you can't mm. see anything. Mm. So they said, okay, if coffee enemas stimulate bile flow, which is what you know all these crazy people that do them say, Uh, Then if we have people do a coffee enema before they swallow the capsule, all the bile will have already been excreted and nothing will happen. So what they found was that uh, that was indeed the case. They had one group of people that did a coffee enema, another group that didn't. They all swallowed the camera and the ones that had done the coffee enema, they got better pictures because no bile was released. Um, so presumably it had already been released in, in as a result of the coffee enemas.
0: So why is it important that the bile is released for in this cancer therapy?
1: Yeah, bile is where the liver gets rid of waste materials. Yeah. And so we think that's where the benefit is coming in that it's just stimulating the liver to go ahead and release stuff and that way it can process stuff more. Um, And admittedly, a lot of this is, you know, bear in mind that the Orthodox medical community has not enlisted uh, great resources in proving how coffee enemas work.
0: Hmm. Um, There's no uh, right. There's no um, patent on this.
1: (laughs) Well, that. Yeah, exactly. And so. um, So, you know, what I'd say there is that we found just simply through experience that people that decide they don't have to do the coffee enemas don't do as well. Um, And, you know, that was I'm a fairly pragmatic person, you know, so as as Nick used to say, if it's moon dust from Pluto, if it works, he'll use it. Yeah. Uh, You know, because. I know these days, perhaps always, but definitely these days, there's this idea that if you don't know exactly how it works, then it doesn't work.
0: No, that's crazy because we both know that half the time we find out something worked for the reason we didn't even realize. You know, I'll tell you something that was always interesting to me, though. You know, we know that patients also, they get chemotherapy, get so sick. And I'm just when I think about when I used to think about this, I used to say, you know what? When they give them the chemotherapy to somebody, you know, go up a bit with a tumor, you know, somewhere in their body and that tumor is breaking up, where is it going, you know? And right. so when I, when I would think about the coffee enemas, I would say, well, you know, that makes sense because they're pro- it's probably going to the liver because the liver, as most people know, is the detox organ. And if you're gonna get something out of your system, it better, you know, you want that, that filter working real good because I, I think that so many people, unfortunately with chemotherapy, I mean, it can be effective clearly, but they get so sick. And if they were able to eliminate the toxic part faster, I mean, it, that makes sense to me. But the thing I guess I was trying to get my head around, and I think you mentioned, or Nick does in, uh, actually it was an interview with Suzanne Summers, which I want to talk about after too, because in her book, Toxic, she had interviewed him at length. But he said something to the effect of that it, it stimulates, uh, what is it called? The hepatic, um, I don't know if it's splenic or a lower colon reflex. To, you know so even though the the liquid is only getting into the distal part of the colon it actually it's almost like it's almost like when you have a clogged sink if you you know put the stuff the whatever the draino in the, the front part eventually everything else starts to like flush through better cuz it's that bottleneck is that is that some of the thinking and how how it works
1: that's based on some studies that were done in the 1920s um where they uh they, they—I believe that's what he was thinking. Anyway, yeah. uh, there were some studies that were done in the 1920s where um, researchers did enemas on dogs and observed that no matter what kind of enema you did, um, there would be a stimulation of bile flow. I think the coffee works exceptionally well because you have that that stimulation, the physical stimulation, but you also have the effect of caffeine and that that would get up to the liver through the the biliary system and definitely gets i mean i'm sorry the portal system the portal mm-hmm. blood flow and so uh so i think that they're the coffee enemas are especially effective for that reason but uh, you know the as i mentioned the coffee enemas were widely used right up until the 1940s along in there And then what happened was that bit by bit, I think they just kind of went out of fashion. Um, There was a whole fad of something called um, auto intoxication and surgeons doing crazy things like removing people's colons to 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 cure depression, you know, which is just nuts. Right. Um, so there was excess uh, in the 1920s, and then all of that just kind of got chucked out the window um, when pharmaceuticals came along. Sure. You know, the explosion of pharmaceuticals in the 1950s, and then coffee enemas became this either hopelessly outdated and old-fashioned and unproven and blah, blah. i forgetting that you know 140 years worth of doctors actually thought it was pretty pretty effective.
0: Now, I know with the coffee animals, then we'll move on, because it's a lot of time on coffee animals, that it should be organic, does it matter if it's Starbucks or Dunkin Donuts, or uh, <laughs> I don't want to give a plug here for any of those companies. But is yeah. that, you know, do you have a spe- specific, like company that you trust that, you know, again, if the listeners decide they want to try this for any reason, like what's what's a brand or where would they order it from?
1: I don't have a specific brand as long as it's organic. That's really organic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about diet. You know, that's another big thing too. And and I I want to bring up something interesting. You know, like I I, I tell my patients this all the time, you know, my teachers over the last 30 years of practice, uh, have come from everywhere, which Mm -hmm. I'm proud of, you know, there was a really good health food store near my office in Long Island. And they, they were doing a lot of like medicine there, you know, they, they had a very big following of cancer patients. And one of the women there, God rest her soul if she's still alive, was, was really amazing with the patients and was familiar with your work. Uh, they did a lot of wheatgrass, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, one of the things, and, you know, and they were very vegetarian, you know, focused. And that was like a big thing, plant-based, juicing sometimes fasting. Uh, but another thing, again, I learned from it was very interesting. It's just kind of always stuck with me. And I, I have a book here about it. It was like an alkaline diet or being in a more alkaline state is better. So could you tell me a little bit about how do you approach the diet and does it vary? Because I, I know also we didn't even get a chance to even talk about this said that you sort of divide the patients into different, um, Types based on their I don't know their sympathetic parasympathetic system in which you know again if our listeners don't know it's you know basically how your nervous system works so but anyway with the diet is it sort of a uniform diet is it very patient I mean does do any of the patients get to eat meat or you know how how do you uh, how do you how do you educate patients on their diet.
1: Okay well part of the underpinnings of this work is that different people need different things okay. uh, and this is based on Kelly's work but it's also what we observed you know as well and the idea here is that uh, there there's a large group of cancer patients and these are the folks that have the carcinomas which and into that would fit your breast cancer lung cancer colon cancer prostate cancer you know most of the common cancers fall into this group And that those people do better on a more alkalinizing diet without the red meat or poultry. Um, We would give them eggs and fish, uh, but not a lot of animal protein.
0: And why why do you think they do better on an alkaline? Does that have to do with the cancer cells? Again, we're going back to sort of metabolic. Is it a a physiological thing or what's the, the thinking on that?
1: Well, the idea comes down to the effect on the autonomic nervous system, um, and you know, a lot of this is based on work again that was done in the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. You know, up until the point when the medical world decided that everybody's the same, um, and it's only just now with the explosion in genetic information that we're starting to accept that maybe different people are different. Um, but the idea being that the, this, these types of illnesses have an overactive sympathetic nervous system, the stress response system, and that, that type of a diet can tone that system down.
0: Really? Uh, that's okay. what we're
1: thinking. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, but there are some cancers that we believe are of a different stripe. And those are the cancers of the immune system like leukemias, lymphomas, myelomas, mm-hmm. those groups. And so those patients, we wind up putting on a more acid-forming diet, which would come down to a lot of meat. Uh, And they still eat their veggies, but they're not eating the alkalinizing veggies like the green drink kind of stuff.
0: And wait, why did they do better on an acidic diet? Because that stimulates their... Sympathetic system, which you want in that case.
1: Yeah, yeah, because they we feel those are the people that have an overactive parasympathetic system, and that parasympathetic system stimulates the immune system. Do you so measure like? They- a,
0: I'm, I'm sorry. Do you measure like? I don't know what they call it. An ANS machine? There's something There is there any way of assessing that? like how they're more sympathetic or parasympathetic, or is that just a clinical Um, impression? It's more
1: of a clinical impression, but it goes so strongly with the type of cancer that, uh, you know, and again, based on Kelly's observations and, you know, based on my own observations, you know, I have patients with lymphoma that I put on meat and they love it. They feel better when they eat that way. Um, So many times their cholesterol actually improves with that diet. Uh, If I ate that way, I'd get sick. But it works for them, you know. So again, different people, different things, different different diets.
0: Yeah, and actually, that's good to hear because that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. I wasn't sure because again, you know, when you just hear in the lay press and other things, it seems like these kind of programs are you know one type of treatment fits all, where we know these all these cancers are so different, and how could that possibly be? What about the supplements? Now I do, again, I don't know if that's changed. I remember back in the day and, you know, a lot of the patients would complain about it. It's just seemed like a lot of supplements. It's like a job. Has that changed at all? Um, Or has that been streamlined in any way? Or do these patients, you know, obviously it's, you know, it's the the schedule of doing it. It's the cost. Um, Is that still an essential part of the program?
1: Well, for a cancer patient have a good half of the supplements are the pancreatic enzymes. It is, okay. Um, and then the rest of them are supplements that we believe can help strengthen the body and help adjust autonomic physiology. Uh, and so, so those are, those are useful and important as well. I mean, the net result does wind up being about um, 200 pills a day and you're right. Oh it's my gone. gosh. Wow. Um, it's obviously not all in one sitting, but I know, right. it, it does require some organization. It does, you know, require some financial investment. Um, I guess, you know, from my point of view, I, I feel like I'm not sure why it should be easy to treat cancer, but if somebody True. doesn't want to do it, they certainly shouldn't come and see me. But but are they able know, to I, have... I try to be I try to be very straight up about. No, I know you obviously you come
0: across that way, but I, I'm just curious. You know, I see sometimes I get patients for other not cancer, but for other medical conditions, and they're on about hundred supplements, and I tend to take them off a lot of them because a lot of them are very very unproven and i you know it's also like your stomach acid in a lot of these patients is deficient to begin with that they're not digesting it you know again this is something again i learned from this holistic um, person who worked in the health food store about she used to have a lot of these patients take betaine hydrochloride she just felt like all of them had very poor digestion so how do these people they tolerate it i mean do you find the compliance is reasonably good um,
1: bear in mind that i am working with a selected population right i tell them this ahead of time on my website and before i set up appointments i have a staff member go through everything with them and be sure they're willing to do it so by the time i get through all of that yes most of them do follow through not all i mean sometimes i understand people Mm -hmm. disappear but for the most part Um, my patients do it. And, you know, bear in mind too, like if somebody has got a really sensitive stomach, I'm gonna take that into account. But if they have a super sensitive stomach where they can't tolerate anything, then this is not the program for them.
0: Well, you know, you bring up two important things I wanna bring up. Now one, you know, it's almost like with the transplant patient, you know, I I wonder if, again, like you're saying, your staff or someone has to assess their mental fortitude for this. I mean, you know, sometimes people who have cancer get depressed or they're incredibly anxious. Um, so, so you essentially have to try to make that judgment before they go on this journey. Do you, you know, from your experience, do you think they're going to make it to the finish line, you know, doing the program? Cause that's where you see the most ex- success. The other thing is I know my own practice too, whenever I am recommending supplements for patients, I tend to try to do lozenges or, or powders or sublingual, if again, I don't know if that's possible in some of the work that you do, because it's just easier, but it does two things. It bypasses the stomachs. They don't have to and they actually get much better absorption. So, um, But uh, that's just my two cents on that. I want to ask you one thing too, because Dr. Gonzalez mentioned this in his interview with Suzanne Summers in the book Toxic, that he personally took bentonite clay to remove toxins. Now, what's interesting is I, I see a lot of patients, unfortunately, with toxic mold in my practice, and this has become part of a very important binder in in helping these patients why did he feel that was so important um to you know to use bentonite clay
1: yeah it's not something that either one of us used on a daily basis for patients Uh, it was more incorporated into some of the cleansing procedures that we have people do you know once a month or once every couple of months
0: oh okay he yeah, sounded like he it did wasn't... it regularly he was like he went i mean i, I could pull out the book and he's like that was like a regular thing for him i, I was just curious I meaning he obviously maybe has. yeah
1: i'm not in. sure what he, yeah. he might have been talking about himself personally as mm. book, But that you know it's tricky because the the clay will absorb anything including right. you want to keep so right. it, it can become rather complicated
0: right i mean here what i'm using we're trying to get rid of the mycotoxins you know so someone's been exposed to let me ask you also too i'm curious because nick explained this so well in that interview because it's so, again something i do a lot of my work too with candida overgrowth which again a lot of our conventional colleagues didn't believe in and still a lot of them don't i see patients from all over the country flying to see me because they can't find a doctor that can help diagnose it and and treat them, you know, because these patients are really suffering from a, a myriad of symptoms, you know, the women obviously vaginitis, but the men with GI issues, a lot of patients with brain fog or chronic fatigue. What's your experience with candida overgrowth, and do you have any special ways that you treat it? I'm just curious.
1: Um... Well, the the pancreatic enzymes, that the high dose ones that I give to a cancer patient mm-hmm. seem to knock out candida as kind of a side benefit.
0: Oh, interesting. I also
1: think that I'm not seeing the same population that you are.
0: Right.
1: Um. So I really don't see that much of it. Um, I know that uh, Nick may have seen more patients with other types of conditions than I have historically. Mm-hmm. And I know he used a fair amount of monolaurin. Which are- oh right, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's
0: a nice one. That's a nice supplement. Um, Doctor Isis, do you recommend? I would think it would be helpful. Just hard to always get organized. Like group support for your patients. Do they follow any kind of groups together when they're all going through this? Because I I know in so many things, you know, you know, before the internet, it was really tough for patients because I, I find that. I mean, it can be, it can have some negatives, but most of the time I think it's positive when they have other people to relate to who are going through. because again, also socially, this has to be very difficult for any patients, unfortunately, going through the program. People question why they're doing it. They're like, you're spending so much time doing this. Their social life changes, their eating, you know, eating habits happen. How how do you counsel them or what do you tell them to do?
1: Yeah, well, I, I On that, on that count, I would have to say that things are overall better now than they were 20 or 30 years ago, because I routinely hear from patients, you know, one of my common questions is how does your family feel about this? How are you feeling about this? And, you know, they almost invariably now say, oh, everybody's so supportive. They're so relieved. I'm not doing that other stuff that doesn't work anyway. Wow. Um, You know, I hear that all the time and. I used to hear that people would be, you know, their their friendly, helpful neighbors would be bringing over food they couldn't eat. But now it's more like everybody's going to go out to the organic restaurant together. So it's oh, nice,
0: nice. It's actually
1: better than it used to be. Um, as far as support groups go, I, I'm not actually a big fan um, because, uh, you know, my patients tend to be very, independent mm. and strong-willed and determined kinds of people and so what winds up happening is they go to the support group and they're supporting everybody else
0: oh i get uh, it yeah okay. and,
1: and and so I, I i haven't really encouraged that um i you know it's one of those things that i think in theory sounds good but i think perhaps when people are dealing with an illness you know like a lot of my patients are are really fairly sick and they're also um a special breed of cat, so to speak and and they they're they're likely to wind up getting their energy drained as opposed to yeah. help
0: I get it that makes sense, yeah, all right. The last question I want to ask you, and it's an important one, what's the future of this treatment? You know, Dr. Gonzalez learned under the tutelage of Dr. Kelly. you learned under the tutelage of Dr. Gonzalez where's the next wave of doctors that may be bold enough, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning, you know, to follow Dr. Isaacs down this path. I mean, there's not, they're not going to get it in a conventional, uh, oncology program. They're probably not going to get it in any functional or integrative thing. They're busy with a lot of things that are less, uh, what should we say? Less, less of a target. Um, but, uh, so how is this going to be sustained? you know, your legacy?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. And to, you know, to a large extent, I, you know, being a, a person of faith, I put it in the hands of God because a okay. limit to how many things in this world I can control. But, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is write articles about some of the big ticket aspects of this work. Uh, for instance, you've already seen the, the the article I did, the update about pancreatic enzymes in clearance
0: yeah.
1: And I wrote the one about coffee enemas, you know, trying to do a more thorough review and have something mm-hmm. in the literature that people can find. Right. Um, I also, you know, part of the reason I moved out of the New York City area um was to be able to afford to have a reasonable size office space where I could have some <laughs>
0: understandable, yeah.
1: Yeah, because it's just pretty prohibitively expensive to do anything in new york um, right. setting aside the the horrible commute yeah so um so those are you know some of the things that i'm looking at but i know that you know when when i mean nick and dr Kelly met as a result of Kelly's involvement with um with steve mcqueen the actor right
0: right yeah uh, I, I don't know if people you know just quickly i don't know, you know, because again, a lot of it got bad press in some ways, you know, just for our listeners. And if you remember Steve McQueen, he was like one of the coolest actors of all time. Um, he went to Mexico, I guess, to get treated by Dr. Kelly. because at that time, I guess it was too controversial in the United States. And it's interesting though, Steve McQueen, from what I heard later on, You know, he worked when he was like 18 or 19, he was in the Navy and he worked on those ships and when he used to like scrape off the asbestos. So he had mesothelioma, which is a nasty, nasty cancer. And I believe also he was at a very late stage. And so Kelly treated him and, and, you know, as people probably know, uh, Steve McQueen died in Mexico. So after that, there was more, you know, controversy and, you know, the the, the lynch mob was going after Kelly, you know, and this whole thing. So I'm sorry, what were you going to say regarding that?
1: Yeah well well that Kelly met Nick at that time and you know Kelly's mm-hmm. uh, Kelly's practice kind of went downhill um in the mid 1980s you know and and Oh after probably- that yeah. yeah, I don't know that it necessarily was precipitated by that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when the torch needed to be passed, the right person came. Yes,
0: along. right. So and that's what you're so, hoping for.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm hoping. for. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, this... so, yeah, so uh, yeah, the whole McQueen thing. I mean, McQueen had actually been treated by chemo and radiation before oh, yes. an alternative, but he had an incurable cancer and in alternative medicine that I mean, in, for any kind of medicine. And that, yeah. uh, that didn't, keep the press from going after kelly um, yeah. i was quite sad
0: yeah yeah well this has been a fascinating and really interesting interview for me i I'm so glad you made the time to do that where can our listeners if they want to find out more about your practice or any of the work that you put out where can they uh, uh, go to
1: Yes. I'd encourage them to go to my website, which is www.drlindai.com. So that's like drlindai.com.
0: Dr. Linda Um, I. Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So drlindai.com. And I'd also encourage your listeners if they're interested to sign up for my announcement list. Um, There's quite a lot of information on my website, but if they sign up for that, it will give them the information and size pieces so to speak over a week or so and then just occasional updates after that
0: are there any meetings on this because again just quickly like i you know again 20 some odd years ago i probably even more i went to you know charlotte gerson came in I you know she was the daughter of max gerson who you know tried to pioneer some of these treatments he also of course unfortunately was persecuted for his work um but they used to have like you know really very interesting you know uh meetings did do you get involved with that at all like any teaching for other physicians or um I don't know is there any societies or anything that are still promoting this you know this kind of work
1: uh not at this point no. I think part of what made the Gerson therapy more manageable for that is that it's really a one treatment for everybody right. you know, it's, not, it's not different for different people and that's that individualization is what's a little bit harder to convey to other practitioners, let alone patients.
0: Yeah. Well, again, Dr. Isaacs, thank you so much for coming on. This was super informative, and I hope my listeners um, you know, value any of the information we provided today.